0: All right, um, I'm just gonna introduce the first person and and not have a preamble. Uh, So the first one to read tonight is Samantha Reed-Avina. And of course, she's pursuing MFA and creative nonfiction at UCR. And uh, her writing is influenced by life, love, family, food, and secrets. Samantha.
1: Thank you. I was really torn about what I was going to read here today and then Tuesday happened. Um, So, thank you. Forgiveness. I don't... I don't know. I don't understand. I don't know how. I don't understand how. I don't. I don't I don't know. These phrases have tumbled off my slack-jawed lips since the election. I feel like a paper doll in a three-dimensional world, some child's fingers pinch my shoulder and hop me through my day. I am dressed, I eat, I go to school, I come home. Everything looks the same, but when I am laid down to sleep, and my paper frame is tucked in bed. I know that reaching my hands out will summon only emptiness, only this grief that I know is shared, but feel so isolated to the pit of my own stomach that it is hard to imagine a way out of myself. I'd like to clear everything up. It's my fault that Donald Trump is president-elect. Um, this year, I skipped high holiday services for the second year in a row. Um, I'll give a brief overview for the 97.8% of Americans who, are, who aren't Jewish. True statistic, the New York Times said it, and I don't think there's a paper more Jewish than the Times, they advertise for JDate, which is Jewish Tinder. Um, Anyway, we don't ring in the New Year by setting off pyrotechnics or getting super drunk. We actually have other holidays dedicated to drinking ourselves into oblivion. Google Purim when you have a minute. Every fall, we recognize the first 10 days after our New Year begins as the holiest days of the year, calling them the Days of Awe. You're supposed to use this time to ask forgiveness from those you have wronged this year. Asking people for forgiveness is the best way to prepare yourself for asking forgiveness from God on day 10. Day 10 is called Yom Kippur and that's when we go 25 hours without eating or drinking. Among the many prayers recited, we always repeat a litany of sins. 44 to be exact. As far as I know, the list has been the same for thousands of years and is repeated by Jews across the world on this one day every year. So, like last year, I didn't go to services for the High Holy Days. On Yom Kippur, I had a cup of coffee in the morning. And otherwise, I did fast, even from water, the rest of the day. My mom gives me credit, but I'm not so sure. We call the prayer containing the list of sins all chet If I'd gone to synagogue this year, I'd have stood up with the rest of the congregation, balanced the prayer book on my open left hand and gently thudded my right fist over my heart as we extol each sin. I only recently learned this practice stems from when the wise men of yore believed all sins came from a heart adrift. Forgive us the sins we committed without thinking or without knowledge. There's a story from my family lore that I never truly understood until this week. When my grandfather's father, Ben, died, Ben's brother, Willie, jumped into the grave as dirt was being shoveled onto the coffin. All I really know about Uncle Willie is this story and the fact that his wife, Lily, insisted on sitting in the back when he drove so that he seemed to be chauffeuring her around for their 63-year marriage. What I've pieced together as an adult was that Lily needed to create space between herself and this demanding man. My grandpa always told me that as he looked down at his Uncle Willie, keening atop the coffin, he turned to the cemetery workers and said, keep shoveling. Despite Uncle Willie's reputation as something of an asshole, for the first time in my life, I think I understand why he jumped into his brother's grave. It's the same feeling currently nodding my intestines around my stomach, squeezing with the patient determination of an anaconda. Forgive us the sins we committed by neglecting our responsibility. When I still lived in Atlanta, my mom and I used to go to a synagogue founded 20 years ago by LGBTQ Jews looking for an inclusive worship experience. It's the only place I've ever been where congregants step to the microphone to add, on behalf of themselves and the congregation, more sins to the traditional 44, digging more monkeyed fingers into our backs. Our fellow worshipers remind us to ask forgiveness for not contributing as much to the Jewish community as we should, for not recycling enough. And inevitably, someone will remind us to ask forgiveness for the sin of doing nothing as refugees around the world run for their lives every day. Forgive us the sins we committed through having a hard heart. 22 seconds after I woke up Wednesday morning, I lost faith in a country my father's family has fought for since the American Revolution a country that welcomed my mother's immigrant grandparents with open arms. I'm now convinced that for the rest of my life I'll regret not making a single phone call for Hillary, not knocking on a single door, not being more assertive when encountering infrequent but always dogmatic Trump supporters. Forgive me the sin of doing nothing more than voting in 2016. I endured what I imagined is an appropriate amount of Jewish guilt at least a couple of days mentally pulling your hair out over not being a sufficiently dutiful fill in the blank here citizen, campaign supporter, student, friend, wife, sister, daughter, granddaughter, or writer. I felt like the minute hand of a clock coated in sticky tar unable to tick past the five stages of grief at regular intervals, jerking back and forth between denial and angry depression, pausing only briefly at bargaining before leaping past acceptance back to denial. Googling WTF America and how could Hillary lose, did surprisingly little to dull the sharp knife of melancholy I felt the electorate had wedged into my back. Unable to find solace, via online commiseration, I picked up the leather brown Hebrew Bible embossed with formal gold lettering that I was given when I became a bat mitzvah or daughter of the Torah at age 12. There are required and recommended readings for every Jewish holiday. So, like a lot of other grad students, I only ever do the required, if that. So, (laughs) I happened to find a section that we're supposed to read on Yom Kippur but aren't obligated, and it was unfamiliar to me. After scolding people who fast, thinking only of impressing God with their fast, and not using it as a vehicle to examine themselves and their actions, God declares, No, this is the fast I desire. Unlock fetters of wickedness. Untie the cords of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Share your bread with the hungry. Take the wretched poor into your home. When you see the naked, clothe them. And not to ignore your own kin. Then shall your light burst through like the dawn, and your healing spring up quickly. Forgive me the sin of thinking, our healing will not come quickly, if at all. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Samantha. All right, so next we have Kate Burns, and she um, gave us a really long bio, as usual. Um, Kate Burns is a second year MFA candidate in fiction at UC Riverside, and she lives in Los Angeles. Wow, so descriptive. Here's Kate.
2: Hey, guys. Um, so I'm going to read to you from a, sh- a portion of a short story um, called "Just Happy to See You." Uh, it is about an unhappy orchestral conductor in Akron, Ohio. At this point in the story, I think what you need to know for this section is that he uh, he's unhappy. He had to send his principal oboist home from rehearsal for bringing a weapon with him to work—a weapon that he had a permit for, but nonetheless inappropriate. In a moment, he couldn't decide whether to label pathetic or inspired. The maestro had downloaded Tinder. He was tall and dark-haired, not handsome necessarily, but commanding, and he thought that conductor was an exotic enough profession to charm if his looks alone weren't enough. He may have gotten a little chubby, but the pictures he chose were all taken from particularly flattering angles. He was 37, an appealing age for a man, he thought, trying to go easy on himself. At 40, he'd better have gotten something else done. At 37, there was still time. His father at 37 had already had a successful solo career, but he was a prodigy, and the comparison was unfair. He had not yet met and married the maestro's mother, had not yet truly begun the work of building a life for himself. The maestro had forged his own path, as hard as it had been, and as frustrated as he has felt lately, he was proud of what he'd accomplished." He'd set the age parameters for his matches wide. He considered himself a connoisseur of all types of women. When he was 22, he'd had a 40-year-old lover, a gallerist and retired ballerina who trotted him out to parties with her like a show pony. It turned out that the single women of Ohio had not aged so glamorously, though, and the act of swiping past so many Jennifers with chunky highlights and custody of both kids made him uncomfortable, so after his first couple days on the app, he put his settings down, capping the age range at 29. Women older than that would be looking for more, and he didn't want to disappoint anyone. The night that he shot guns with Carrie, the maestro couldn't sleep. He sat in bed, still a little drunk, swiping through profile after profile. There was something satisfying about getting to be so picky, although he found it frustrating that he wasn't matching with nearly as many women as he was swiping right on. His wrist was sore, and he realized that the stiffness he'd felt there these last few days was most likely a result of the strain of so much swiping. He should put the phone away and rest. Just a few more profiles first. One of his first matches had been a woman named Brett, a 24-year-old studying to be a midwife. She had a pretty face, artificial, he thought, but flattering white blonde hair and a thick Midwestern frame. She'd written him first. Orchestral or train. "'She'd been delighted to discover that it was the former, "'although, of course, she knew this "'from having scrolled through his pictures, "'which featured several of the publicity shots "'that the orchestra had taken a few years earlier "'of the maestro in action. "'She was just being cute. "'I played the clarinet all through high school,' she wrote. "'Their conversation had tapered off since then, "'but now, chemically elated "'and wanting to keep that feeling going, "'the maestro invited her to get a drink with him later that week. "'She wrote back almost instantly, "'I thought you'd never ask.' The next day, Armand came into his office and shut the door. Hey, maestro, you know I am here. The maestro closed his laptop. He's going through some shit, Armand, just between us. His wife is dying, and she left him. Can you imagine? She's got six months to live, and the only thing she knows for sure is that she doesn't want to spend it with him. Armand was unmoved. That's terrible. It doesn't justify his workplace behavior. You're not wrong. That said, he's got a permit, and he's a wildly responsible gun owner. This was perhaps a mild oversell, but what Carrie was going through pained the maestro and he wanted him to come out of it intact. Don't offend him, Ron, you're making yourself look bad. I'm just letting you know that the complaint is going forward and that he's been asked not to return until the board meets to deliberate. The maestro looked Armand in the eye. He liked him, even if he was a hard ass. He was just doing his job, they all were. Okay, he said, You obviously have my support, just let me know what I need to do. Armand stood. Thanks, it'll be in your email. He turned to leave but paused at the door. You know, my mom has Parkinson's. She moved in with us last year, but it's gotten bad. We're going to have to put her in a home. The maestro felt this like a kick in his gut. I'm so sorry, Armand. I didn't know. Armand shrugged. Thank you, he said. His voice was gruffer than it had been, although his face remained placid. It is what it is. He met Brit at a wine bar several blocks from his apartment. It was an optimistic addition to the neighborhood, a long, narrow space with sophisticated lighting and a cheery chalkboard out front that was regularly updated with clever slogans and the daily sandwich specials. She was shorter than he'd expected, a little squatter, but pretty, curvy, with a polished, slightly over-made-up hippie look. She wore a delicate, filmy shirt, shiny lip gloss, and several dangly necklaces that looked like they'd tangle easily. She gave him a big smile and a hug when he walked in. Over several glasses of Malbec and Moscato, she told him that she'd grown up in the Cincinnati suburbs and had always thought she'd be a teacher, but while nannying in college, she realized she didn't much like kids and that midwives were always in demand. Good midwives, she explained, making sure he understood the difference. Actual nurses, not just hippie earth mothers who she thought were dangerous. He liked her in spite of himself. She wasn't his type. When she got up to use the bathroom, he realized she was wearing high-heeled boots that gave her an extra four inches or so, and that without them, she probably wouldn't even come up to his shoulder. But she was warm and friendly, and after the initial introduction, she asked him so many questions about what he did that he was surprised when she told him she'd never actually been to a live professional orchestra concert. Best of all, though, she seemed to like him. She'd been suitably impressed when he told her about the orchestras he'd conducted right after grad school, about touring Prague and Budapest and Eastern and Western Europe as an apprentice to Naomi Arvey, about how now that he was more mature, he felt like what he had to say through the music was so much more refined than it used to be. She smiled at him and finished her drink. Do you want another one, he asked. She shrugged and smiled bigger. Sure, she said, or we could just get out of here. Out on the street, he pulled her close to him and leaned down to kiss her. He was a little worried about someone seeing, but it was dark and late, and he pulled her away from the street lamps outside the bar before they walked back to his apartment. She was warm and tasted like cinnamon. Her lip gloss had mostly worn away, but what remained was pleasurably tacky, a sensation the maestro wasn't used to feeling, and he licked his own lips several times when he came up for air. They stood in the living room, and she admired his high ceilings and the view from his window, the concentration of sparkling lights that made him feel at night as though he were in a real city. He put on a recording of the planets without telling her that it was his. As the strings swelled on Mars, she grinned at him. Cool, she said, and kissed him again, grinding against him in a way that gave him more confidence than he'd felt in a long time. She followed him into the bedroom where he pulled her gauzy overshirt over her head, burying his face in the exquisite softness of her cleavage, pulling away only to help her unfasten her jeans and ease them down over her hips. The maestro was startled by the wild thatch of pubic hair bursting out from underneath her lacy underwear. He'd thought that it was a thing, that young women all shaved or waxed or otherwise depilated or at least cropped down there. Even the aging gallerina, 15 years ago now, had been bare. He certainly kept himself tidy, not shaving it all off but keeping it neatly trimmed as a regular part of his grooming routine. Always wear clean underwear, his mother had said, in case you're in a car accident and they have to cut it off you the logic of this advice had escaped him if you were in such a terrible accident your underwear was likely to get soiled anyway but he'd taken it to heart and kept his body hair as neatly if not as artfully trimmed as his beard he felt betrayed that Brit had not He had a vision of his beard getting knotted up in her pubic hair, dreadlocked, so inextricably tangled that they would have to cut themselves apart. The waddle to the desk or the kitchen or wherever he'd left his scissors would be so painfully awkward, and his hacked-off beard would look so pathetic, and before he could stop himself, he shuddered at the vision. Britt noticed. "'What?' she said. "'You've got a problem with Bush?' She sat up slightly, grabbing at the waistband of her jeans as though she were about to pull them back on. He stuttered. "'No, no.' He couldn't think of a good thing to tell her that he'd been shuddering about instead, though, and before he knew what was happening, her jeans were zipped tightly shut again, and she was reaching for her shirt. "'You don't have to do that,' he said. She squinted at him and cocked her head an exasperated look in her eyes. "'You just winced when you saw my body. Why would I stay?' After she left, the apartment was quiet, other than the tinny sound of the recording through the walls. The maestro felt swollen with shame. He wasn't sure if it was for her or for himself. He took off his shoes and went to the kitchen and drank a tall glass of water, trying to cool himself, trying to flush the whole night from his system. He went to the living room and turned the music off. They had made it only to Saturn before she'd run away. He removed his pants and lay down on the hardwood floor, comforted by the shock of the cold, smooth surface against his legs. Well, he thought, well... He had been rude, perhaps, but accidentally. She had been ruder running away like that. She hadn't really been his type, anyway. He removed his shirt and balled it under his neck like a pillow. It was stiff, and his wrist was throbbing a little. He had a brace for it somewhere in the linen closet. He didn't want to wear it to rehearsal, but he could wear it around the house, and if he decided to go back on Tinder, he probably should just delete it. He was better off on his own, at least in Ohio.
0: Thanks thanks, Kate. All right. Uh, up next we have Chloe. there you are. Um, and uh, Chloe has lived for many years on both coasts, and she prefers one over the other. She has written about fandom, feminism, flatulence for Dorkley Dorkley, is that right?: Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Mary Sue College Humor and reductress. She enjoys consuming true crime media and buying the same striped shirt over and over again. Chloe)
3: allowed to do that, to move it? Okay, I'm doing it. Um, uh, I'm going to read two pieces of very short fiction that are like thematically linked. Okay. <laughs> move. The Clara doll arrived the morning before I moved away. I didn't look anything like the enthusiastic men who unbox Clara dolls in the commercials. The lid of the box didn't pop off instantly like a gasp. I struggled to remove all the staples, and the lid came off slowly, as though it had claws. She lay stiff in a plastic bag, surrounded by grey packing peanuts. I didn't open the bag right away. It blurred her face, which was an exact copy of my face. The familiar round bulb of a nose pushed against the inside. When I'd asked Parker if he would like a Claire doll as a gift, he said yes too quickly. I suspected he thought he could get her to do sexual positions I didn't like, specifically the farm girl, which always made my leg cramp. I wasn't mad. I got to leave. He had to stay. Staying was worse. It meant meant learning to live with the absence. It's weird, Parker had said, that the name happens to be Clara doll. I'm getting a literal Clara doll, a doll of Clara. It was a weird coincidence. Clara wasn't a common name. I didn't know any other Claras. Yeah, I'd said to let him know I'd heard him. <laughs> I dug my nails into the plastic bag until it gaped open. I spotted the freckle on the lower lid of her left eye, my freckle. There was my scar above her lip, and her breasts slackened away from each other like mine always did. I thought I'd want her hidden. I would thought I'd put her in the bedroom closet, where I'd imagined Parker would store her when I visited. But I couldn't let her out of my sight. First, I placed her in a chair at the table and ate my lunch opposite her. It was nice, not having to make conversation. Then I sat her on my bed as I packed my remaining clothes. She washed my routine as though she knew what was next. I wasn't finished, but I lay myself down, placing myself behind her. My body went stiff as I examined her back. She didn't seem to dislike this. I took a familiar shoulder in each hand and pulled them towards me. Then I drew the covers up and over, breath inflating the comforter, molding it around our shape. Neither of us moved for it must have been hours, because eventually the room fell dark. I was the one to do it. I don't want to leave you, I whispered before I leaned in. I had never been so bold, but it felt right, warmth reuniting with warmth. Then, sudden like thunder, the comforter was gone, cold stung our skin, Parker stood over us. Clara, what the fuck, Clara? He shouted our name, and he pulled me back, ripping me in half, tearing me from my own lips. This one's called Knuckle and Nail. First, we fantasized about seducing the therapists of our friends. We wondered what these therapists thought of us. We daydreamed about how they crossed their legs when our friends brought us up, how they doodled our names on their stiff notepads. But we didn't have any friends with therapists, so we shattered and reassembled around the idea of seducing our own therapist. The first ones were too easy, too ready to be our mother-girlfriends. We started by telling them we were in love with every boss we'd had. We whispered that we had never masturbated, and then, 16 days later, we cried and confessed we'd lied. Then we couldn't find the tissue box, and they had to stand up and hand it to us. We were careful to seem hesitant to share that we used to wear a wig to school and tell teachers our parents had been murdered. We hoped they understood that we wanted nothing more than to be the absolute best we could be, but we could not do so without the undivided attention and love of everyone around us. They tasted like their offices, cramped and sterile. Even after we moved in and memorized their snores, we still kept our appointments. We showed up early and we ended late. Except for appointments with Terry. Terry was the oldest and most recently divorced. Terry didn't think continuing our treatment made any sense. One day, Terry had a bandage around her cashmere soft, liver spotted ring finger and a violet bruise above her right eye. We asked her if she was okay and it was the first time we'd asked her this. She said that she had sliced her finger when chopping zucchini for dinner and that the sight of blood made her lose consciousness. When she was 11 and her family lived outside of Montreal, she was ice skating at the town rink when she saw a girl her age slip on the ice, and a teen skate by too close and fast, and a tiny thumb, only a knuckle and a nail slide to her feet on a warm flume of blood so even when she first glimpsed red spots in her underwear three years later, she fainted. We knew what she had looked like then, playing dead on the butchered ice, her blonde hair curled towards her mouth, her white wool tights soaked with urine. We told her this had happened to us too. Terry left, not then, but eventually. We held her tight in front of her office door and stored away as much of her honey and smell as we could and we said in her ear, this isn't goodbye, it's see you later. She said in our ear, fuck off. Everything you said was a lie, she cited as her justification for leaving us. But it wasn't, everything we said was true. The others didn't leave. We exhausted them. And when we did, we replaced them with robots. Then we made the robots promise that we were not robots. We would die if we were robots. We would fucking die if we were robots. We removed their batteries, and then we realized they didn't take batteries, so we unplugged them. And still, we would not stop speaking, would not stop spilling and leaking and draining, would not stop fumbling over the description of Terry's corduroy jacket when she planted her feet and told us we were nothing. We couldn't hate ourselves more than we already did, but we could always try again tomorrow.
0: Thank you. um, So we'll just take like a couple of minutes and then we'll have our final three readers, but we can all stand up and mill for a minute.
1: I was nervous about being because I <laughs> felt like I um, no, so really so like was making a Because the room, the the room, the room, the room, the I
0: noticed
4: that they were <laughs> <running> the, <slow-out. laughs> they were <raptors> <laughs> the, the <laughs>
0: because they were they
1: could get the I don't Yes. <laughs> and you go to the kitchen the kitchen
4: It's so surprising. It's like,
1: yeah, I think it's all It's like, yeah, I you watch the PSN, Taryn, Taryn, and think it's really funny. It's just like, yeah the cut I love it. I love it. I love it. Like, my idea this, I do really. know how many like that.
0: Hello If we could Come back so for the second half here we've got three more people and uh, we're going to kick it off with Mr. Joshua Rigsby um, who grew up in the famous little town of Roswell, New Mexico he enjoys writing about the history of tea among other things and he does not believe in weather balloons
5: Josh I appreciate the little, the little snicker on my behalf, that's nice um, laughter so this is, uh, this is from a uh, linked collection that I'm working on That um, it's set in Whittier, California. They're all connected to this one uh, apartment complex. And uh, the idea anyway is that with each story uh, progressively you move uh, further back in time so that the story you read gives context to the story you've already read. And so uh, this one is set in 1959, it's toward the end, and uh, here we go. Ford slowly turned his key in the lock of apartment 27 as though he wasn't sure what he'd see when he walked inside. The door creaked the same way. As he walked through and closed it behind him, everything was the same. As though she had just stepped out for a moment. Clean, well kept, couch on one side of the living room, television set on the other, dusted, symmetrical, proper, Everything just as she had left it, except for all the flowers. It was such an odd feeling. Ford leaned back against the closed door and sighed. His legs and arms finally relaxed. He loosened the black tie knotted around his neck and he tossed the keys onto the little side table he and Charlotte had bought at the antique store in Montgomery, Alabama, so far away and so long ago. Forty years ago, was it, or thirty-five, he wasn't sure. She was the one who kept the dates and always chastised him for not knowing. Ford fished the funeral service bulletin out of his suit coat pocket and lay it next to the keys. He would put the little trifold paper in a drawer somewhere and forget about it until he accidentally threw it away someday, He shucked his suit coat and flopped it over the kitchen chair as he made his way to the refrigerator. He would have laid it across the table, but for all the flowers, lilies, most of them, resurrection flowers, he was told. Ford pushed past the covered dishes from friends and relatives, all the tin foil stuff left over from the wake, and made his way to the very back of the refrigerator to pull out a small, white Tupperware capped with a bright red lid. He felt the weight of the dish before he opened it and dumped its contents onto a plate. Fog-gray mashed potatoes covered in oozing brown gravy made way for a hunk of roast beef as it plopped down. Ford turned on the oven and set the plate inside. There would be no more of this, Ford thought to himself as he listened to the oven tick, hiss, and light with flame. No more meals. This was it. Her last gift to him on her wedding day. How good of her, he thought. I shouldn't say funeral day. Uh, I just said wedding day, and that is entirely incorrect. (laughs) I am very happily married. I need to let you know. All right. Her last gift to him on her funeral day. (laughs) All right, moving forward. How good of her, he thought. Ford, I I even practiced this in front of my wife, and I said wedding day, and I said, I cannot say wedding day right there. I have to say funeral day. All right. Ford and Charlotte did not have a beautiful relationship. They had, they did not have romantic dinners or long cruises in the Mediterranean. They didn't walk hand in hand or nuzzle noses as older couples are wont to do. He had tried at first, of course, the way men should, he thought, but... It was met with a strange sort of resistance by her, an awkward shrugging off of any outward signs of affection. Eventually, he stopped trying altogether. The timer buzzed ford pulled on an oven mitt and retrieved his dinner the roast the potatoes the onions that gravy the smell ah the smell soon he'd be able to try those new fancy tv dinners he'd seen advertised fresh fast food with no cooking necessary a modern convenience for the modern man he'd been looking forward to tv dinners for some time but they would never smell like this they would never taste like this nothing ever did "'Ford pushed the vases aside and ate at the table, "'and when he was done, he pushed the plate aside "'and stuck the tips of his fingers behind his belt "'and let in a contented yawn. "'What to do with all these flowers?' "'He ran his tongue over his teeth. "'It would be nice to have a little dessert, too.' "'He rinsed his plate and wandered back into the living room, "'still the same.' He turned on the television and sat down on the couch and waited for it to warm up. The station came in clearly. Charlotte's soaps were on. Ford hated soap operas. He always had. He belly ached and groused every time he saw them. And Charlotte would turn from the television and raise her eyebrows ever so slightly, and Ford was immediately silenced. Those eyebrows were the masters of the marionette that was his sex life. Now, though, seeing the show felt heavier than it did before. If he changed the channel now, it would never change back there was a finality to the thing to anything that he did from now on every decision he made was one that she would not contribute to and once he undid something of hers it would be undone forever what a strange sensation in his palms as he realized this the pang for dessert came to his mouth again The savory meat and gravy, calling out for a sweet companion. What was he supposed to do? He couldn't just up and make himself a pie. That was ridiculous. There was nothing to do about it then but ice cream. The corner store across the street sold ice cream. He could buy a quart, no, a gallon of ice cream. And not the tricolor Neapolitan either. Pure, plain vanilla, sweet and cold, no surprises. Ford's face lit with a smile. He would go now. He put on his slippers, buttoned his pants, and threw himself out the door, his shirt's tail flapping behind him. Ford wheeled his legs down the stairs in quick circles across the width of the Hale Kalani apartment complex and through the side entrance. He trotted across the alleyway, through an abandoned parking lot, and jaywalked across the street to the corner store. His excitement tripled as he flung open the doors and beelined to the cold case freezers in the back. He plunged his hands deep into the icy throat of the freezer and came up with a gallop. Tub of ice cream, purest white. The clerk eyed him at the counter. "Mister McBride, are you all right?" He, the clerk asked. Not to pry, but you look a bit disheveled. "I'm fine, just fine," Ford said, catching his breath. "But how's your wife doing? I'd heard she'd taken ill. She's splendid." "That's a dollar twenty-five, right?" "Yes, sir." "Well, there you go. Keep the change." "'Tell Bernard," I said. "Hi." "Thank you, sir. I will," the clerk said, but Ford was already gone. Inside Apartment 27, Ford scooped two generous helpings into a bowl and found, much to his delight, that the gallon tub fit perfectly into his ice box. He had to take all the other frozen food out of the ice box first, of course, but he hadn't the slightest intention of eating any of those things to begin with. He set the bowl on his coffee table and advanced toward the television cautiously. He turned it on and waited for the picture to show again. And the soap opera was nearly over now. He placed a trembling hand on the dial. He paused for a moment and took a breath and then turned. The channel clicked and changed and that was it. He had done it. It was done. He sat on the couch and picked up his ice cream, his eyes far away, thinking about the origins of things and where she was and if she was happy there. He was relieved when she had finally died both for her sake and for himself no more pain for either of them he'd wept in the intervening days and at the funeral he would miss her now though it was time to laugh like he hadn't wanted to laugh since he was a small child doubled over wheezing breathless laughter that was what he wanted pent up for decades he would let them all free at once tomorrow it would be time to pull down those oppressively dark curtains he'd always loved the light pure and unadorned. Today, though, they could stay. It was how she had left them for him. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Uh,
0: Next up is Jason Shackett, and uh, he's a second year MFA candidate at UCR as well, and he's focusing on fiction. And he's worked as a journalist, an editor, a tutor, a screenwriter, a director, a uh, video game writer uh, and a finder of stray shopping carts. Jason.
4: Okay, let me get my levels here. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Okay, good. <clears throat> All right, this is a this is a 15 page short story, uh, and I'm gonna be merciful, and you get six. Okay, good listeners. It was just after the Value Save checkout girl scanned a second box of rice but before she picked up the bag of frozen curly fries, that Maria heard the voice, smooth and resonant, say, "I am Wang Wei, and I now own the known universe." Maria stopped thumbing through her coupon book for a minute and gave the checkout girl a puzzled look, then asked if she'd heard someone over the intercom. Looking to the loudspeaker on the wall, the girl said, that didn't sound like Mrs. Nguyen, then accepted the five coupons Maria held out, but only scanned three of them. They called over the manager, who himself seemed rather preoccupied, then argued the finer points of a coupon expiring on a certain date versus by a certain date, until the manager finally relented and just let them go through. Maria forgot about the voice altogether, until three hours later after picking up her daughter Alicia when she heard there are going to be some changes very soon. Maria looked in the rear view mirror to find Alicia actually looking away from her cell phone long enough to make eye contact with Maria. I heard him too, Mom. He's in our heads. He's like some kind of ancient poet, I guess. (laughs) So it hadn't come from the phone or the radio or outside of their Kia. It did sound like another message from Wang Wei. Maria stopped eyeing price belt lords outside the dueling Arco and Circle K gas stations for a moment, and wondered what Alicia had heard about Wong Wei. Like maybe it was one of those MTV prank things. Everyone at school heard him. Alicia said, even the stoners under the bleachers. She went on about Googling and Tweeting and Wikiing. It turned out there'd been a lot of information about Wong Wei online, but most searches now return pages of "Who's Wang Wei?" results. Maybe he achieved enlightenment or something? Maria had never heard of anything like that. Alicia just shrugged, then resumed tapping away at her cell phone. The next night, Maria's husband Dave came home after a long haul delivering lumber from Eureka to Phoenix. By then, people around the world agreed they had heard a voice, but nobody could explain where it came from other than pointing fingers in the vague direction of China. Maria told Dave she didn't understand why a Chinese person would telepathically speak to her in Spanish. ''That's weird,'' Dave said. ''I swear I heard English.'' Then it occurred to Maria that she hadn't really heard the words. Uh, The information just came to her, like someone talking in a dream. They finished eating dinner and put on TV, not mentioning it again. Around three in the morning, Wang Wei said, ''Everyone needs to listen now.'' Waking Maria up just an hour before she had to start getting ready for work, she rolled over to Dave, who was also wide awake. ''From now on, no more wars, no more fighting.'' No more violence. Maria held her breath a moment. Is that it? Dave asked the ceiling. And they tried to squeeze in another half hour's sleep before the clock radio blared to life with news that both the United Nations and Congress were discussing Wang Wei's message. Later, while she was swapping out bedpans, every one of Maria's hospice patients asked if she didn't think it was great that people wouldn't be murdered anymore. They wouldn't have to worry about terrorist attacks, gang violence, or muggings ever again. Maria agreed, but silently wondered how many of them actually woke up and heard Wang Wei speak. She knew from experience that Mrs. Thomas in room 308 could sleep through a fire alarm, and Mr. Fredrickson had no sensation from the neck down no matter how rough you were with his catheter but each one of them had a special light in their eyes when they talked about Wang Wei it was during lunch at hometown buffet with Gabby and Flora a couple of the other nurses that Maria heard the poem while the moon glides over the sea said Wang Wei waves following its steady rise pale mist shrouds the harbor from view blinding all to what lay ahead Maria looked up from her empty plate, noticing that no one else got in line for the salad bar. Gabby reached under her collar and massaged a crucifix between two fingers, saying, That was quite lovely. Wasn't that lovely? Flora nodded and started talking about how it reminded her of something she saw in a Disney movie once. She couldn't remember the name. But Maria was already across the room, tonging cherry tomatoes and romaine lettuce onto her plate. She didn't consider the words of the poem until later, when Mr. Friedrichson tried to romance her with Spanish, which he often did during sponge baths, putting great effort into rolling each R. La luna se baña en el mar, he said with a wink. But that wasn't what Wang Wei had said, really. Maria blamed the mistranslation on Mr. Friedrichsen's attempt to distract her from the bacterial odor lurking in the folds of his skin. And then again, maybe it was her own distraction at the salad bar, when she probably should have been listening to the owner of the known universe. This opinion was reinforced later, when Maria heard the drive-time DJ interrupt her pop music long oh, to talk about an argument that had broken out on the floor of the United Nations. A representative from Mali had punched a representative from Malaysia after an email had gone out condemning an Egyptian interpretation of the moon from the poem that had been circulating in a viral video. Maria lost the thread of the story pretty quickly and changed the station. But she caught it again at dinner while spooning out chicken adobo. Do you remember how the poem goes, Dave asked her through a mouthful of instant rice. Maria nodded, but if she was absolutely honest, it was hard to recall the exact words. Alicia looked up from her phone long enough to say, he's not that good of a poet. Dave frowned and gestured for Alicia to pass the dusty bottle of sriracha sauce. You know, we don't even know who this guy is, right? Alicia said. Wait, Dave said... Didn't they say he's some 17th century Chinese poet? Eighth century, but he never said that. You know Wang Wei is like the second most common Chinese name ever, right? She waggled her phone in front of Dave and Maria, as if to reprimand them for the time they wasted earning a living rather than learning useless trivia on the internet. Mm. That doesn't add up, Dave said, tonguing the inside of his cheek. What's with the poem, then? Alicia just shrugged and went back to tapping at her phone, obviously not that interested in the motivations behind Wang Wei's poetry. She didn't say another word until that morning, when Maria awoke to the sounds of screaming pouring out of her daughter's room. Dave vaulted out of the bed like the teen athlete he'd once been, grabbing the baseball bat he kept in his footlocker. Maria fumbled with her terrycloth bathrobe belt and followed as Dave loped down the hallway. Maria bustled through the door Dave checked the window for signs of forced entry Wielding his bat like a broadsword Alicia was still in bed Tears and snot spilling over her face As she clutched her phone to one cheek Maria swept in the bed next to Alicia And wrapped her arms around her Surprised to feel Alicia return the embrace Those arms clinging to her like they had years before What is it Dave asked What happened Alicia gulped the air and heaved out the words I can read then held out her phone as if it were a dying kitten. Can't read? Dave dropped his bat and slouched his back audibly clicking as the lack of adrenaline hunched him over. Honey, what are you... Maria, what's she talking? A funny look came over Dave's face as he stared at the Justin Bieber poster over Alicia's bed. Maria clutched Alicia close barely breathing until Alicia pulled away and became a teenager again. Look. Alicia held her glowing phone up to Maria's face and she finally looked at it. Aside from the numbers, nothing on the screen made sense. Hey, honey? Dave scrunched up his face and pointed at the Justin Bieber poster with his baseball bat. Didn't that thing used to say that stupid kid's name? Maria turned around and looked up into the dewy eyes and the windswept hair of the teen idol. Next to the pouty face was a collection of symbols that made no sense whatsoever. Maria passed the phone to Dave, who confirmed that Aside from the numbers and icons, he couldn't understand anything on the screen. He had Alicia unlock the phone with her well-practiced fingers. Perhaps the phone was just broken. Maybe the dim morning light was messing with their eyes. Maria wrenched open the Venetian blinds and spotted Alicia's backpack on the floor. She reached inside for a textbook with four smiling people on the cover, then thumbed through the pages. While the numerous graphs and maps inside were... Quite nicely drawn, she couldn't figure out what the book was supposed to teach anyone. At the same time, David pried open the back of Alicia's phone, digging around behind the battery. Just as soon as Maria told him about the textbook, he pointed at the back of the battery and said, wait, that looks like a word, right? He passed the black rectangle to Maria and pointed to a sticker on the side. There was a barcode, some numbers, a couple of other funny symbols, and a line of text that clearly said, Shenzhen Manufacture. With the usually reliable internet turned into a collection of strange squiggles, the whole family huddled on the couch to watch the news where it was confirmed that, yes, everyone now appeared to only understand Chinese and that they should all switch their devices to the Mandarin language setting. Maria tried this with the home computer, but she still couldn't read the letters on her keyboard. Unfortunately, there was also no way to set her car or the street signs to Mandarin.
0: Thanks, Jason. All right, so, and our last reader tonight is Miranda Sang, and she grew up in San Francisco, and there she is at the back of the room. And uh, she teaches writing as a Gluck fellow while in the MFA program at UC Riverside. Miranda has received support from Community of Writers at Squaw Valley, Bread Loaf's Writers Conference, and Kearney Street Workshop. Her writing is published or forthcoming in the Offing, Lumen, and the Hysteria Anthology. She is the poetry editor at the Santa Ana River Review. Miranda.
6: Thanks, Damien. Because I'm a millennial, I'm going to read on my phone. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with a poem uh, that's not my own because I just think it's appropriate and this week has been rough on everyone. Um, And now my phone wants to select everything, so I guess I'm not as good of a millennial as I thought I was. Okay. Okay. One Art by Elizabeth Bishop The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I own, two rivers, it's against me. A continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even, even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing is not too hard to master. Though it may look like, write it like disaster. Um, contemplating the technical. Um, and this poem is dedicated to basketball. I feel it politically inside my knees, which do the things you expect knees to do. Fall weak, jerk, hearing the word her, and feeling a foul. Her comes like a tech from behind, like pigtails on little girls, like the mirror betray- betraying my ripening husk. I nearing 30, and I with my first undeniable wrinkle. It stretches like a noose from the left to the right of my neck. By the way, I am sleeping, twisted up like a cursed fetus, like my mind at the desk, it is caused. You have such a beautiful neck, like a swan, my mother no longer says. Maybe I should have taken her advice and lasered off all the hair on my body. Maybe in basketball, I could forgive the opponent attacking the backs of my knees, which feels like today, walking along with this wrinkle across my neck, hearing her, her, her. If only her could be plucked or lasered for a fee like these pinprick hairs that cover me. Once there was a little engine that could, but preferred not to. Her big rosy face for customer service rendered wasteful because little engine had other concerns like the smoke pouring out of her head, the coal shoveled into her body, and the riders wiping their muddy rubbers against her insides. She, despite herself, let ripe orange and apple cargo mold over in her holds. Once there was a little engine that craved thought before action. Her blue paint became a question mark dotted by its potential to peel. What, if anything, is the worth of steel bared in contemplation? What sort of role model could one be, clicking with no phrase of, I think I can, but I think, saving the next day for Now I can, maybe. The engine with her little chassis and big ideas pondered her timetables. Shiny, serious trains piled up behind her, pushing her caboose with their heavy grills, their things to do. Their billowing smoke mantras now made her cough. Move out the way, you're holding us up, they told the little engine. I could, but I'm exercising my right not to, she said. And for now, she blocks the track. A Father Encourages. I watched my daughter as she dove down to the bottom of the well. Came up for breath only once. Came up to speak only once. Came up herself only once. Gasping for breath. In a rush to breathe. Only to be told she hadn't reached the bottom yet. It was I who said that and pushed her head back under. Um, this is like maybe a prose poem I'm about to read. I don't know, it's an experiment that I'm working on. <laughs> um, it's unlike other things I've done, but um, it kind of reads like a story. A Neighborhood I Live In. Walking down the street, I notice a quality in the air that I can only describe as loyal. It's, the, it's a humidity that clings to me like I gave birth to it. There's a yard sale with a snow-blasted ch- Christmas tree at the curb. The tree, the tree is the brightest thing in the entire neighborhood. A moo cat paces like a guard dog in the window of an off-white bungalow further down the block. It follows me from one corner to the other of its little world. A man in a long plaid button-down smiles at me from his lawn. As I pass him, I take the first bite of a kumquat I have in my pocket. It always tastes supremely wrong to bite into the rind of that citrus, expecting something so bitter and tasting instead the sweet the sweet peel before sour flesh. Sometimes I think the kumquat is a metaphor for people I know, and then I think of devouring them. <laughs> I'm very curious about whatever my next-door neighbor is doing out in his yard. On either side of the path leading up to the front steps, he's dug a pit. The two pits are equal in size, about the size of a basketball. The pits appeared about two months ago, but I see him come out every so often, full-size shovel in hand and inspect his work. He waves to me and I wave back. He has a sweet sheepish smile. Leaves have been piling up in the pit nearer to my house and I wonder if he cares. Sometimes I think about him, about asking him what the deal is, but then I think better of asking. We all need our privacy, and what if I don't want to know? Sometimes I dream about the pits. I see him walk out the front door with his hunched back, holding two grocery, grocery store hula hoops and a can of kerosene. He lays one hula hoop around each pit and pours kerosene all over both of them, steadily and nonchalantly, the same manner with which he examines the pits in waking. I wake from these dreams knowing my mind is still working, a good thing. The day after the election, I drive up to my house and see him in the front yard, measuring the pits again. I'm about to go inside my house when he waves to me. I wave back as I search for my keys. It seems like a good time to ask him about the pits. I walk over. When I ask, he looks up from the yard and smiles. I'm going to bury America's body in here, he says. Carry on, I say. That night, I get the next part of the dream. He's taking he is taking a young tree and planting it into one of the pits. He gets down he pats down the soil securely, carefully. I leave my house through the window in my pajamas and I help him to plant the other. Um this is the last poem I'm gonna read. Um and it's an excerpt from Alphabet by Inger Christensen. Um I just thought this was a hopeful poem, even if sad. Um, okay, from Alphabet. Apricot trees exist, apricot trees exist. Bracken exists, and blackberries, blackberries. Bromine exists, and hydrogen, hydrogen. Cicadas exist, chicory, chromium, citrus trees, cicadas exist, cicadas, cedars, cypresses, the cerebellum. Doves exist, dreamers, and dolls. Killers exist and doves, and doves, haze, dioxin, and days, days exist, days and death, and poems exist, poems, days, death, early fall exists, aftertaste, afterthought, seclusion, and angels exist, windows, and elk exist, every detail exists, memory, memory's light, afterglow exists, Oaks, elms, ju- junipers, sameness, loneliness exist. Eater ducks, spiders, and vinegar exist. And the future, the future. Thank you.
2: You've been
5: listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by.